The following is a production of the Motor Racing Network, the voice of NASCAR. 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 This is MRN Radio, the voice of NASCAR. The Motor Racing Network presents an original podcast series, 50 Years, the voice of NASCAR. Earnhardt is using every inch of racetrack, and Elliott gets together with him, and Earnhardt goes off in the grass. Certainly his style and his ability on the air, the way he painted a picture. Brings the car back onto the speedway and keeps it in a straight line and holds onto the lead. Juan Pablo Montoya's car has blown apart right with the jet blowers that were working to the high side of the banking. That was so weird because I was taking a little break. I had a little snack and I was drinking some water. All of a sudden I heard this boom. Kurt Busch gets the win. And we go to pit road to hear from the crew chief, Tony Gibson. Tony's screaming and hollering and he grabs me by my shoulders with both hands and starts shaking me like I was on fire. And that's him screaming. He is a Daytona Beach native. He's grabbing and hugging me. Welcome back to MRN Presents 50 Years, the voice of NASCAR. I'm Fred Armstrong. The Motor Racing Network's award-winning broadcast crew features some of the most colorful personalities on radio. Over the decades, life on the road has presented many unique and challenging situations and generated a rather large volume of MRN lore. So enjoy as we take you behind the scenes and share some of the stories you've never heard before. If you're a typical member of NASCAR Nation, you may have tuned your scanner into the Motor Racing Network's at-track radio communication channel we fondly call the Q. If so, you undoubtedly heard some of the banter that occurs when the crew takes a quick break from the action. Veteran broadcaster Dave Moody. The Q channel is how we, uh, as the on-air talent, communicate with each other. We obviously have to hear each other, and the Q channel is, is a scanner setting that we are all on, and we get real-time audio from each other. So it, when the guy in front of you is done talking, you know it, and you start talking. And when you're done talking, the next guy in line knows it. It also gives us an opportunity to communicate with each other during commercial breaks and focus on things that we might want to talk about in the next segment and uh, and to get ourselves pointed for the, for the next few laps of the broadcast. I've got the uh, story on uh, Chase Elliott. All right. Thank you. Is Rusty and uh, can I throw it up to Rusty for a question? Are you ready, Rusty? I am. All right, cool. Just making sure you didn't step out for a smoke break or anything. You know? Yeah, yeah, you know me, right? <laughs> <laughs> but quite honestly, most of the time during the commercial breaks, the the Q channel is where we all bust on each other and tell really bad jokes and just kind of entertain ourselves. You know, when when the red light is on and you're calling the race, it's high pressure and it's stressful. And, you know, you're always on high alert because anything can happen at any time. When you go to the commercials and you hear the producers say clear, it allows you to exhale for three or four minutes, breathe for three or four minutes, and just kind of lighten up a little bit. And boy, do we lighten up. And we're up. Good stuff, guys. Really good. Shopping online. You kidding me? We got Alex Hayden on this broadcast. We need to bring our A game. Yeah, Yeah, Alex, I drove the Buick the four hours up here one time. Yeah. Took two hours to get it wound up and two hours to get it slowed down. (laughs) Oh, boy. So you need those Flintstone brakes, got some holes in the floorboard. Oh, well, that's, that what it took. that's what it took over at the hotel. That had a big old trunk in it, too, didn't it? Oh, my gosh. I've had apartments smaller than the trunk on that thing. Yep. <laughs> if I 
have been. If it had been back when I was going through my divorce, I'd have just moved into the trunk of that thing. <laughs> it was much nicer than where I was living half my life. A lot wider, too, huh? A lot wider, yeah. Quieter. 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 Yeah, quiet. Well, a that's lot for sure. Quieter. Yeah, that's for sure. Jeez. Tiny house. You know what I mean going through one of those, Dave, don't you? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> going through the big D and don't, don't mean, mean Dallas. Dallas. <laughs> I mean, we abuse each other on the Q channel. We, we tell the worst jokes in the world. Hey, Jeff. <laughs> yes. Do you know what a, a cow's favorite magazine is? You know, I sure don't. What is a cow's favorite magazine? A cattle log. <laughs> we hear from fans at the racetrack all the time. And I don't know if this is a compliment or not, but we hear from race fans all the time that what happens during the commercials is almost, if not more, entertaining than what happens when we're actually on the air. According to NASCAR champion, Hall of Famer, and MRN color commentator Rusty Wallace, humor has a place at the racetrack, but perhaps not on the queue. I'm, I'm kind of a serious guy, right? I mean, I've always been known to really be serious about my drive, and, and even when I'm having a, a, a conversation, be pretty serious. And so when I'm up in that booth, I might be really thinking about something really hard about what I'm going to talk about next or whatever. And on these breaks, these guys just break out in some of these ridiculous-sounded jokes, I think. I think they're just stupid, personally. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you maybe the funniest man in Michigan right now. His name from Goldsboro, North Carolina. Alex Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate that. I really do. I hope everybody's having a great day. And uh, let me... I know. <laughs> Rusty's looking at me like, I'm going to smack you. So no joke. Go. No joke. No, no, joke. no, no gotta, I'm sitting right. You're not sitting next to Rusty. I am. Give you, us the joke or die. And Rusty gave me the. I'm, I just like, I'm, what's he doing? <laughs> stand up, Rusty. He's doing stand up. I can't do stand up. So no, my are you going to tell the joke at some point? <laughs> no. Yes. Rusty's going to smack me. No, I'm not. I think it's worth it. Chicken sedan. We get it. <laughs> Thank you, oh, Kyle. Yeah, that's nice. Give a oh. punchline. And some of them are really good, but I'll sit there and stare at them, and I'm going, man, you know what? I can't even add to this conversation because I don't know how to tell a joke. I mean, I have to get on the Internet and find one to tell one. I can't remember any of them, but they really get serious about it. And so at that point, I can take it two different ways. I can laugh with them, and if it starts getting irritating me, if it starts irritating me a lot, I'll just leave and go to the bathroom. During the course of a live broadcast, a play-by-play -play announcer might utter somewhere in the neighborhood of 6,000 words or so, real fast, while trying to keep them fresh from lap to lap. It's a verbal ballet that continues for three to four hours. So, it's not uncommon to hear a cross tongue or two along the way, and nobody knows better than veteran race caller Mike Bagley. This was the 2002 Daytona 500. This is the famed Grobschnob um, incident to where... According to Joe Moore, I started speaking Hindu on the air. This is, this is with you know, I would say what twenty laps to go in the Daytona 500. I was working turn four that day, and I I don't know what I was trying to say, but it was like five words merged and convened at one time and came out as one. Dale Jarrett gives the boost to Jeffrey Bodine. Bodine now will go to that grabs Rasmussen. That was Ryan Newman now feels a challenge from Dale Jarrett behind them. Well. I had one of the, a new sales guy out there with me, and as soon as I said it, you know, I just looked out of the corner of my eye to see if he was looking at me like, well, maybe he didn't hear it. You know, and it's like, okay, you're, you're in the Daytona 500, dude. What in the world was that? Well, we go to commercial, and then here it comes. 
Hey, Bagman, can you recreate lap 187 for us? What was that? Yeah, that's what we want to know. We want to know. We weren't sure what you said there. Oh, is that when my tongue got wrapped around my teeth about four no, times? you started speaking Hindu. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Bagley, your instructor, English as a second language. That is H-E-N-D-O-O. <laughs> or voodoo, I don't know. He didn't do that. You know who really enjoyed that? Whoa. The fans! <laughs> I was taking a page out of your book, you. Joe. Yeah. It didn't come back around, though, did it? <laughs> Sounded like Otis on the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> oh, I'm going to sell Andy. <laughs> it still, to this very day, gets discussed and gets brought up on the truck. People still will bring it up. But that's, that's one of those unfortunate moments where I didn't find it funny, but a lot of other folks found a lot of enjoyment and got a lot of humor out of it. And, hey, you know what? If that's what I could contribute from the 2002 Daytona 500, so be it. Napa! Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. The 2004 edition of the Great American Race was the scene of a proud moment for MRN as President George Bush settled into the broadcast booth for the start of the Daytona 500. And at the beckoning of the late Barney Hall, radio listeners around the world heard the Commander-in-Chief call the field to the green flag. A lesser heard utterance was Dave Moody's comment on the Q Channel afterwards. Well, it was a big deal. I mean, the President of the United States was, was coming to the racetrack. And, and he was there, and the Secret Service was there, and, and there were all kinds of things that happened that day that don't usually happen, simply because the most powerful man on planet Earth was in attendance to watch the race. And that was all pretty cool, and we were all impressed by it. And then he actually came up to the booth and sat in on our broadcast for a time, which was, which was beyond neat, beyond cool. And I think it was Barney Hall that said, Mr. President, would you like to call a lap? We were under caution at the time. Mr. President, would you like to call a lap? And the president, being the you know sports-minded guy and, and, and all-around kind of cool guy that he was, said, sure, I'll give it a crack. And they came down for the green flag, and, and he called it all the way to the drop point where the president of the United States handed off the call to me. And to call the start of the Daytona 500, the President of the United States, George Bush. Here they come to the green. That'll take the better part of a lap for them to get up to full song, the dicing. And I did my deal, and then Mike did his deal, and it went around for a couple or three laps, and the President sat in. And then at some point we had a caution or, or, or went to a commercial. I can't remember which now because it was a long time ago. And we went to commercial. And a little bit of time, a couple or three minutes passed, and, you know, the President said goodbye to everybody. I assumed that he and the Secret Service had packed their bags and headed on, head on to, their, to their next stop. And me, 
being the wiseacre slash loudmouth that I've always been known to be, during the commercial said, well, he's no Barney Hall, but the president does a pretty mean throw to turn one. He's still with us, and he uh, appreciates the compliment, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I spoke again the rest of the day without knowing for sure that I was supposed to, because, man, <laughs> when you're getting backdoored by the president of the United States, at the time, I was a little bit embarrassed, but now it's a moment I'll never forget for sure. Humor has always been a keystone of MRN's broadcast style since the network's inception in 1970. As the 70s unfolded, so did a few new kooky fads. And one in particular started making a regular appearance at NASCAR events. Streaking. And not on the racetrack, but nonetheless, as anchorman Ken Squire and the always colorful commentator Dick Brooks witnessed two streakers at Martinsville Speedway, they just couldn't resist calling the action. At Martinsville, Virginia, the records today look like they're going to go Kaylee Arborough's way with the exception of one unnamed streaker wearing an engineer's cap who did about 150 feet here right up to the right of our broadcast booth just out of the fourth turn and uh, was not apprehended. Marvelous run. We have sad news for the streakers here today. Streaker number two was just caught. The first streaker got away with it, but the second streaker didn't make it. Over here to our right, they they nabbed one. Well, first streaker must have had Simon eyes on, and he slid through him. The second streaker, he didn't have it. So we're going to have to get him a can of Simon eyes. You'll have to get him bail first, because he's in bad trouble with the law. Profanity is the cardinal sin of radio broadcasting, but it can be unavoidable in a live setting. In 1974, Ken Squire had a dicey tay-a-tay with a foul mouth. Talladega one time brought Rocky Graziano in, middleweight or light heavy. Anyway, he represented a beer company. He'd never seen a race. And uh, (laughs) so it rained that day, and we were going to fill the void with, and somebody gave us Rocky Graziano. And uh, he came in and sat down. And I said, so this is your first race? What do you think of it? Well, well, it isn't, Ken, but I want to tell you something. It's one hell of a goddamn race. <laughs> I, saw, I saw this guy slid, and I found unbelievable. It really is a fantastic race. And I thought, well, if I take no heed and pretend I didn't hear it, I could continue with this guy a little because we needed to fill with something. And we were live. Blah, 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 blah. And I said, so, so what is it that uh, in, in, intrigues you about this? I really love it. I've been here, I suppose, at least an hour, an hour ago, a half hour ago. I'm going to stay at a whole goddamn race. And that was an interesting education in mixing sports. Yeah. One of the challenges of live radio is that anything said or done on the air can't be taken back and can lead to embarrassment. As retired MRN anchorman Joe Moore experienced while filling in as the Tuesday night talk show host of MRN's NASCAR Live. It was the week after Blaze Alexander was killed in an ARCA crash at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And in the week before this airing of the show, I was at Charlotte and I talked to Jeff Green about Blaze's crash. And they were good buddies. And Jeff gave me some real good audio about that. And so I had that queued up, and I was going to open the show with the story about Blaze being killed in the, in the crash, and then punch up the Jeff Green audio, talking about what a great guy Blaze was. 
And <laughs> unfortunately, we also kept on the drop-in machines a lot of little crazy things. I mean, you know, Woody Woodpecker, cartoon sound bites, anything we could find. And we just pop them in all the time. One of the sound bites that I had was Yosemite Sam, who uh, said, I paid my four bits to see the high diving act, and I'm going to see the high diving act. Well, before we went on the air that night, I was popping that up just to get audio checks, just to make sure they could hear me and all that. I was playing different little sound bites, and that particular one, I apparently did not disengage. Uh, We go on the air. And I come on being just as sincere and humble as I can be because a man has died. And I'm going to play a soundbite from his good friend, Jeff Green. When I punched the button, you didn't hear Jeff Green. You heard Yosemite Sam. A memorial service will be held tomorrow in Charlotte, North Carolina, 11 a.m. at the Thomas Aquinas Catholic Church. NASCAR Bush Series champion, Jeff Green. I paid my full. Jeff, uh, we talked to him uh, earlier in the week, and so <laughs> quickly spun the dial, got the right thing, punched it up. There it went. But the damage was done. While covering pit road, two-time NASCAR champion and Hall of Famer Ned Jarrett was the victim of bad timing and uttered one of the truly infamous pit calls when nature called, and Richard Petty dove onto pit road. Barney was in the booth and Mike Joy, and uh, so I thought that I'd found a good spot to go to the restroom, and the restroom at Martinsville is, is right in the center of the pits and not far from the pit area where they would come in and stop, and Petty happened to be pitting just right outside the restroom. And they said, uh, Richard Petty coming in for an un- unscheduled pit stop, so let's go to Ned Jarrett. Well, there I was in the latrine doing my business, and uh, they threw that to me, and so I had a stopwatch around my neck, so I so I could hear him screech to a halt and turn the stopwatch on and, and called his pit stop and, uh, you know, timed his pit stop, did the, did the whole thing. Veteran broadcaster Dr. Jerry Punch was there to witness the unflappable Jarrett launch into the impromptu play-by-play without missing a beat. So Ned goes in the bathroom. Well, I knew Ned wasn't feeling well. And I knew Ned had, had some, also had some health issues he's been battling. So so I I, I clicked the mic and said, I'm just going to go check on Ned. So I walked over. It was only another 20 feet from me. I walked in that center block restroom. And I guess for whatever reason, there's so much going on up in the radio booth that it didn't hit Barney that Ned was in the restroom. Because about that time, we come back from break. This we come back from break. Here's Richard Petty, who veers off of the track in turn four and comes down pit road again. Now, he just pitted. So he throws it to Ned. Well, Ned is sitting on the toilet in the restroom with the, with the door shut in the stall and the Marty on the floor. Just as I walk in, and I hear, and I hear Barney throw it to Ned in my headset. And the next thing I know... All I could see was like this antenna sticking up out of, you know, from Ned's head. <laughs> and Ned starts calling this pit stop from the stall. Now, you can't see anything. He has no clue what's happening. In reality, Richard was just coming down, I think, to get the windshield cleaned or top off on a few gas. But Ned calls a four-tire stop. Ned starts bellowing out. And remember, you're in a cinder block building. It's maybe maybe 8 by 12. And it's echoing and in, in not crazy in there. And Ned's calling his four-tire stop. Here's Dale Emman, you know, but Maurice, Richard, the king, going to get four t- Four tires. Now, people sitting in the stands with their head hugger radios on are looking down there and thinking, Ned has lost his ever-loving mind. They're, they're not. They're just wiping the windshield. But Ned was in the, in you know, in the toilet. So, and I'm thinking to myself, now this is going to be a classic. But about that time, the stall next to Ned opens up, and there's this guy 
that's got his pants down around his ankles, and he's hearing this guy in the stall behind him screaming about a pit stop and changing four tires. He knows some guy the next stall over has got to have lost his mind. It's going crazy. So he's hopping out like a bunny with his pants around his ankles. I don't think he's even cleaned himself. And he's trying to get out of there. And I'm laughing so hard. And, I mean, watching this guy hop out of the stall, you know, halfway through going to the bathroom. Ned's calling for a tire stop. Barney has no clue that we're both in the, in, in the bathroom. And it's just one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And, and Ned comes out and we explain to Barney and the guys upstairs, hey, Ned was in the, and Barney's thinking like, you know, we didn't see any tires change, Ned. Ned, so I didn't either. <laughs> but you threw it to me, and I did what I thought he might do. And uh, Barney said, we need to fix that. And Ned said, well, we could mention that it was just hard to see from where I was. Covering a pit stall from a bathroom stall is truly a unique experience. And what are the odds of that happening again? To another MRN pit reporter with the last name of Jarrett? Only on MRN, right? Second generation broadcaster, Glenn Jarrett. We're working, we're at Mid-Ohio and I'm on pit road and I had just been, the pit road in Mid-Ohio sits down below. Uh, you have to go up a hill to go up into the garage area. Well, somebody had had some problems and I had gone up into the garage and caught up with them and, and gave a report and, and did an interview with them. So as I turned to come back out, uh, Eli Gold was in the booth with us. This was uh, when Eli, uh, uh, this this probably only been about five, six years ago. And so Eli was in the booth. He was he was calling the action. And uh, so I radioed into the, or, or, you know, I hit my, uh, my button, and of course I was on the air there, and I said, hey, I said, while I'm coming out of the garage here, here I said, I'm going to stop and use the port john And they said, yeah, go ahead. So uh, I thought, okay, I'm clear. So I went into the port john and just like with Dad, somebody that was running up front had to make an unscheduled pit stop, and Eli got excited, and he threw it to me while I'm standing in this port john <laughs> So I thought, well, okay, like father, like son. So you know, he he had mentioned who the driver was, so I just called the pit stop. I couldn't see anything. You know, I just called the pit stop, and uh, I said, "Back to you, Eli." <laughs> it's like everybody. And the funny thing was, there were a lot of fans standing around there. You know, and uh, uh, they all had headsets on, listening to the broadcast. And when I when I walked out of the portage, I looked around, and everybody was standing up, clapping, cheering for me. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, it's happened to me now." As in-car cameras brought the fans closer to the action, MRN kept the pace, installing a radio in the number 90 Junie Don Levy Ford of the late Dick Brooks for some up-close and personal commentary from behind the wheel. Veteran sportscaster and former MRN anchorman Alan Bestwick recalls how the live reports took an interesting turn on lap 53. Back when the, the, the cars started carrying radios, they were analog radios, they weren't scrambled, you know, all that kind of thing, and you know, Dick was driving for Junie Donlevy at the time, and, and, you know, exposure for sponsors always being a needed thing. I think Dick was asked if he would be the in-race, like an in-race reporter for MRN, if they could talk to him during commercials and that kind of thing, and they, they started doing that. And then, and I know there was a sponsorship tied to it, somebody that sponsored the race car that was a sponsor on the radio. But then one day he, he started saying, well, you don't have to wait till the caution. You just talk to me anytime during the race. I'm just out there driving around which obviously is quite the understatement, but it was at Talladega, and they went to him, and he's talking about something, and then he says, oh, wait a minute, and what's happening is, that, like, the engines let go in his car, and he's spinning out at Talladega, and this is captured live on the radio. Trouble right in the trial, one car is out of control, it's Dick Brooks' chameleon sunglasses, Ford, an engine let go, just as he came into the trial, Brooks 
trying to keep the car out of traffic. The rest of the field has gone by, and Brooks smacked the wall with the front end and the rear end of the car. He now skids off into the grass. Dick Brooks, a crazy ride through the trioval and across the start-finish line. What happened? Well, the motor blew. I don't know. Something uh, let go. It uh, must have been at the bottom end because it started dropping oil. I got the clutch in and got the thing shut down, but uh, well, I kind of got loose. I hope everybody enjoyed it because it scared the hell out of me. Well, how are you, though? Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I, uh, you know, it's another day at the office, I guess. Phenomenal. Richard Brooks. As frustrations flow on pit road, MRN microphones are always right there in the fray. Sometimes the bearer of the mic becomes the target of anger from a dejected driver, as veteran pit reporter Jim Phillips found out while quizzing the late Dale Earnhardt. Well, uh, the, the first after-the-race interview I had on a cup race happened to be Dale Earnhardt at Talladega. It was 112 degrees that day. Uh, Dale was running uh, first, but on the last lap, Kenny Schrader passed him, and Jeff Bodine passed him. And Bodine scrubbed him as he went by. He didn't care if Schrader passed him, because he liked Schrader. <laughs> but he did care that Bodine passed him. He cared that Bodine was even in the garage. So I heard these words in my headphones. Jim, go get Earnhardt. He had a little camper down there, and they were in it. I said, where's Earnhardt? They said, he's in there. They said, good luck. <laughs> so I, I went in there and I was waiting on him and he was staring straight ahead not looking either way he wasn't talking to nobody and either Barney or or Eli threw it down to me to talk to him I asked Earnhardt two questions he looked straight ahead never did look at me okay we're in the Dale Earnhardt truck and Dale's getting undressed here a cool suit off another wild Talladega finish Dale yeah I reckon uh, the last lap on uh, what happened on the last lap over there? It's got beat. And that was it. <laughs> so that was the. Uh, but, but I had known Dale uh, working with LD in the old sportsman days and the Bush days. But uh, like Barney, I come to know a man that would do just about anything. If you weren't flashy, didn't try to showboat, do your job. He he was very cooperative. Occasionally tough on the media, Tony Stewart pushed MRN anchorman Jeff Striegel's embarrassment level to the max back in the day. Interacting with drivers has always been fun and interesting and unique. And, and at one point I was on pit road, I think it was New Hampshire, and Tony Stewart had qualified well and he was one of the drivers we were going to talk to. And I walked up to Tony and I said, you know, as a, uh, as a one-time winner here, what are your thoughts going into the race? And he looked at me and he paused and he said, actually, I'm a three-time winner here. Maybe you ought to do your notes before you come and interview me. And that was the end of his, I mean, he, he stopped right there and I just looked at him and I'm like, he's right, but I don't know what to say to follow up to that. So I just said something to the effect of, that's Tony Stewart. He'll start third here this afternoon. And then kind of put my tail between my legs and shimmied away. I never showed up again without knowing exactly what that driver had accomplished at that track. Stewart's jabs were to be expected, and anchorman Alex Hayden certainly wasn't immune. Tony Stewart would constantly, because he got it, he knew we were live, and he knew there was nothing in the world we could do about it because we were live. 
He would walk up to you and, and turn your radio on your belt a different channel without you knowing it. So you think something went totally wrong with your equipment while you're in the middle of talking. So you stop talking. It throws the broadcast out of whack, and he'd start laughing. Then you reach down because you knew he did something. Um, there was a time I was about to interview uh, a, another driver, and Tony walked up just as the booth was setting up the toss down to me at the driver intro stage Tony walked up from behind and took my headset off so I couldn't hear the toss, I couldn't hear anything had no idea what was going on in the broadcast and then of course he unclipped it and ran down the stage with it and went out and did driver intros and waved to the crowd holding my headset uh, so there, the, Tony has a lot of things, he used to, for whatever reason I was a target of Tony's, uh, there were many times that um, he would finish up before he got in a race car and He'd walk up behind me. Again, he liked to have the sneak attack. Uh, he'd pinch me on the back of my leg and leave a big welt there, and he just liked to watch me jump up in the air. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret, like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. NASCAR play-by-play -play is serious business, but the MRN crew always look for a way to keep it fun. During the 90s, we cooked up a subtle challenge to work an oddball term into the race call, the word of the day. It was fun while it lasted, as Dave Moody and sportscaster Mike Massaro recall. Word of the day, and this was probably 15 or 20 years ago now, we would come up with, with a word, and the first person that could work that word into their call after the green flag flew would win. You didn't win anything, but, you know, it was just one of those contests. And, and it went along fine for a number of years until we're in New Hampshire one year doing a standalone truck race, if memory serves. And we had all been out and, and had lobster for dinner, as you do when you go to New Hampshire. We'd all had lobster for dinner, had a great feed, came back the next day. Word of the day in pre-race, the producer would all announce it. Gentlemen, word of the day is crustacean. Crustacean is the word of the day. So we go to the green flag. Green flag flies, and it's lap one. And I'm current calling turn one and two, and I just, you know, I do whatever whatever I did. Comes to the back straightaway, and Mike Massaro was working for us that day at the other end of the racetrack, who later went on to, to ESPN and, and other glory. 
and Pokey, as we lovingly referred to him back then because he was always late, on lap one of the race says, I don't know who it was, Jack Sprague pulls away by two truck lengths. There are no barnacles on that crustacean. And and everybody continued on for the next few laps until we went to the first commercial break. And there was not a sound on the crew channel as we went to commercial. Nobody dared to say a thing. Gosh, it was, it was in the late 90s. Hadn't been there very long. And I was pretty eager to please, I would, I would say. I, I really wanted to do a, a good job. In one of the weeks prior, may have been the week before, maybe a couple weeks before, I was able to do it. And I was successful. And I got a pat on the back, and people were complimentary and thought that was a great thing. I was able to get it in. So, of course, you know, I'm encouraged. I wanted to do it again. Probably made no sense whatsoever to anyone. <laughs> but uh, but I got it in. And from what I'm told, that was the last time we ever did the word of the day. So <laughs> that's my uh, notorious claim to fame uh, with, with that uh, particular story. Uh, I know it happened in New Hampshire. I don't know exactly what I said, but, but it's been brought to my attention several times in the last couple of decades <laughs> that it wasn't appropriate. So uh, I'm glad it made uh, the history books, but not glad at uh, the way I made the history books. Sometimes the perils of travel equaled that on the racetrack, and getting to and from the events could be as dicey as a late restart. For Barney Hall and Jim Phillips, Hitching a plane ride with Dick Brooks nearly turned disastrous. I think we were up about at least 14,000 feet or more. <laughs> we're in a King Air 90. It's full. Got all the R.J. Reynolds people, plus Barney and I. And we're playing cards just to pass the time, uh, going from Dover, Delaware, to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And all at once, I look out and the props aren't turning on the airplane. We start going down fast and I look over at Barney he said don't worry about it <laughs> and we're going the engines aren't running and, and if you don't think you can do a lot of praying in 12,000 feet you're crazy <laughs> no I knew that it had some kind of an electrical problem to uh, shut everything down because everything on the airplane uh, blacked out and uh, Dick Brooks was looking underneath the instrument panel for the toggle switch that would cut the master switch back on what had happened we hit a pretty bad bunch of air there and it jarred the airplane up and down a couple of times the next thing i knew that everything went blank in the in the cockpit like i said so we lost electricity to all the instruments on the airplane we probably dropped maybe eight ten thousand feet and uh, i knew if we found that toggle switch and got it cut back on we'd be okay and sure enough about that time uh, dick brooks hit me on the shoulder and said hey we're okay because the lights came back on and uh, everybody was whistling and cheering and glad to get out of that little deal there one of the worst things that happened. Miss Winston was on that airplane, Sandy Fix, and I thought she was going to fix herself when that plane started out. I mean, she was wise as a ghost, wasn't she, Mark? Yeah, we were. <laughs> that's right. That, that, that's exactly right. Vehicle travel has its own set of dangers. Over the 50 years on the air, MRN announcers have rented over 7,000 cars and traveled over a million miles on our highways and byways, experiencing only a few mishaps, like when Jason Toy and Dave Moody had to stop and pay toll. We're doing a, a standalone truck race. I don't even remember where now. And as part of our transit to and from the racetrack, there were a couple of toll booths involved. So we pull up to the toll booth, and Jason Toy is driving, and I'm in the I'm in the co-pilot seat. And we've got a guy in front of us. I mean, the king of the hillbillies in front of us. You know, the, the truck with the wooden bed on the back, 
what few what few sheet metal body panels were still attached to the truck looked like they'd been attacked by moths. I mean, this was a this was a ratty looking deal, and the guy behind the wheel was exactly what you might expect. Cut uh, sleeves cut off his t-shirt, lip pushed out to here because he had about a can and a half of skull shoved down his face, and he could not, for for whatever reason, he could not throw the proper amount of change into the little basket to get the green light to turn on. So we're sitting and we're sitting and we're sitting and, and this guy can't make it work. <laughs> Finally, I just lean over and I lean on the horn. And this guy in front of us flips out, bails out of what's left of his pickup truck. He's got the jean shorts on, the jorts, you know, with the can of skull in the back pocket. And he literally hurls himself onto the hood of our rental car and presses his nose up to the glass, literally inches in front of Jason Toy. And I can't, I can't tell you what he said. Well, I can, I can use initials. F-U-M-F. F-U-M-F. Second time, just for emphasis. I'll go when I'm... MF ready to go. F U M F. Slides off the hood, goes back to his truck and shuts the door and proceeds to continue lobbing nickels into the basket. To- Jason to- Jason's a big guy. I mean, he played football for Marshall University. He's a big dude. His eyes were as big as saucers. He thought that guy was going to like pull a gun and shoot him through the windshield. And I'm not altogether sure that that wasn't an option. So he's, he's just, like, terrified at this point. He doesn't even dare, dare to move. Fifteen seconds later, the guy still hasn't gotten the green light, so I reach over for the horn button again. I thought Toy was going to discombobulate himself. He dislocated every joint he had in his body, preventing me from pushing on that horn one more time. I'm not sure if I would have really done it or not, but the fact that Toy thought I would have done it was all we needed. Even foot travel around the track can get squirrely. As Barney Hall and Jim Phillips found out, walking to their car following the clash at Richmond Raceway. Well, it was February of 1990 at Richmond, Virginia. Uh, The temperature was in the 20s, and the wind was blowing uh, 30-plus miles per hour. It was cold. The coldest race I ever broadcast. So uh, we we were trying to—we parked about a mile from the racetrack uh, so we could catch our airplane. And so Barney and I were walking together— by the time we walked that mile and got to the edge of the road, our eyes were watering and, you know, we're cold. And, and plus, on this day, they had changed the traffic pattern. They had three lanes going toward Richmond and one to the airport. And uh, I saw that motorhome sitting there, but they, uh, they, the, the cop had held that lane of traffic for so long, we forgot about it. So we were watching the other way. We took one step, and that motorhome hit us. Actually, the motorhome hit me, and I hit Barney. Uh, I thought he'd killed him. He, he kept trying to get up, and he'd fall down. He was ble- his head was bleeding. I had four broken ribs and a punctured lung. And to show you how uh, how little my brain is, <laughs> it didn't even knock me out. For better or for worse. We'll try again. <laughs> but Barney will tell you probably the worst thing that happened to him was he had to spend the next five days in the hospital with me. <laughs> Barney, Barney, is that pretty much the way it happened to me? Is that is that your account of the story too? That's close enough. <laughs> no, it, it could have been really, really bad uh, if if that motorhome had been a second behind what the speed that they were running. Why it would have knocked Jim and I both into the median, and probably the motorhome would have 
would have run over us, and no doubt we'd had some serious injuries. But uh, it was something to talk about pretty good for a couple of weeks, and uh, I don't want to go through that again. Veteran pit reporter and NASCAR Hall of Fame executive director Winston Kelly was there to witness the bizarre accident. We heard a thump and turned around and looked and didn't see Jim and Barney and then saw him laying on the ground. And, you know, we both walked over, you know, not walk, we both sprinted over there as fast as uh, we could run. <laughs> and uh, Eli went straight to Barney, I went straight to Jim. And what we learned afterwards, we were very confused as to what happened and how it could have happened. But we, you know, he went in, uh, Eli went in the ambulance with Barney, I went in the ambulance with Jim. The ambulance got, the ambulance drivers got lost going to the airport. Every bump they hit, you could hear Jim back there moaning and groaning and, you know, found out the same was in uh, in Barney's, uh, in the ambulance Barney was in. And what had happened is if you think about if you're crossing uh, a street, you look to the left and traffic is coming from the left. And they had gone halfway across, so they looked to the right for the traffic coming in the other direction. Well, the lane closest to them was a counterflow lane. So they looked to the right and didn't see anything and didn't see any, uh, any taillights to, to notify them that they might ought to look back to the left. And they stepped out and they actually walked into the side of the motorhome. They'd have been a little bit earlier. They could have been in front of the motorhome and it could have been a lot worse. But they walked into the side of the motorhome and then, you know, knocked them down and they each had a couple of broken ribs and I think uh, Jim had a collapsed lung. But one of the funniest stories uh, after that that Barney told, with two others that Barney told, he said later, he said when he woke up, uh, when he came to before the ambulance got there, he thought he was laying in the baggage claim area at the Charlotte airport. And he couldn't figure out why the heck he was in the baggage claim area. He was so dazed and, and, and you know didn't know where he was. Well, the other story he told us a few weeks later, he said the nurse came in that night about 9 o'clock at the, uh, at the hospital. We had already left to go back to the to the motel and he said the nurse said you know there's somebody on the phone that is just insistent on talking to you he will not take no for an answer or you feel okay talking to him and Barney said yeah he, he was groggy he said he talked to him and he said hello and he said he got this this uh, guy came on the phone he said how in the hell do you broadcast 400 laps of racing all across America and you can't see a motorhome he said, uh, uh, what? I'm, uh, what? He said, I ask you, how in the hell can you broadcast 400 miles of race or 400 laps of racing and not see a motorhome? So he's kind of stuttering around and he said, uh, then the guy, then it said, hey, it's Earnhardt. How you doing? Ask him how he's doing. And then he said, do I need to send my plane uh, to get your mom and Karen? Karen being his girlfriend and his mom in Elkin. He said, do I need to send my plane to get him and, and to come up there to be with you? That's classic Earnhardt. First, his relationship with Barney and giving him grief. Second, what he's going to do for somebody else but doesn't want anybody to know about him. And Barney said he, he was going to be okay. They were going to release him. For five decades, the halls of the Motor Racing Network have echoed with the tales of life on the road, on the air, and around the track. Humorous, inexplicable, and humbling anecdotes that sum up the MRN experience. Join us for the next episode of MRN Presents 50 Years, The Voice of NASCAR. We'll revisit the booming 90s, where the sport and the network kicked into high gear. 
That truck series was something else. You know, I always think back about the early days when we used to go to these short tracks, the, the Evergreens and the I-70s and these small, small communities and these small, small tracks. I don't think any of us, the broadcasters, the NASCAR officials, everybody, I don't think we really, really knew what we were doing, but we were having a ball. Until then, I'm Fred Armstrong. Richard Petty goes back in front. They both spin. They're in the wall. Petty is sliding, slamming into the wall. He's coming down toward the finish line. Will he make it? He's still moving. The car stops 300, 400 feet shy of the finish line. This program was a presentation of the Motor Racing Network with studios in Concord, North Carolina and Daytona Beach, Florida. And now it appears we may have a fist fight. We see drivers and helmets, safety officials trying to jump in there and separate them as tempers have really flared after this amazing incident on the final lap coming into turn number three. MRN Presents 50 Years the Voice of NASCAR was written and produced by Rich Colbert. Dale Earnhardt comes to the white flag and the caution flag and Dale Earnhardt is going to win the Daytona 500 in his 20th try. Any use of the accounts or descriptions contained in this broadcast must be with the express written permission of NASCAR and the Motor Racing Network.